Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, record a podcast. This is Big Trouble in Little China. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Big Trouble in Little China. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? I'm feeling grateful. I'm here recording a pod with you, our special guest, Nash. I'm feeling a whole bunch of other things as well, but uh, we don't talk about those things. This is what's important right now is we are together. We're going to have some fun. Well, you let the cat out of the bag, so I got to go ahead and introduce oh. our esteemed guest. She was referred to as the fifth Beatle of Blast Zone, or the third Beatle? The George Martin of Blast Just Zone. one additional Beatle. The additional Beatle. The 27th cat and the production of Cats. She is a host of the wonderful podcast, Death and Friends. She is the host of KO Comedy. She is a producer and host on Cabin Fever Comedy. It's Nash Flynn. Hey, it is. Nash, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. If I had all my mental faculties, I would have thought of a food-related pun to introduce you with in honor of our- Defunct? Our defunct <laughs> podcast talk show. <laughs> good old days. Defunct for now. It might come back, but just not this season. It has to come back because I have just- I've not even been watching Top Chef, to be honest with you. So. That's not good. You gotta right, and I had Wagyu beef for dinner, and I was just, you know- But did you, though? That's I know, that's true. That's true. I bought it at Star Market, so probably not. Oh, that means it's fake? There's a lot of fake Wagyu beef out there, oh. man. It's, you got to be careful, especially when you buy like Wagyu ground beef. Like nobody grinds Wagyu oh. beef because the whole point is the marbling, you know? See, yeah. that's what you I thought. Like up. I was at the grocery store and I was like, why would they make ground beef out of something that's supposed to be so good? But then I was like, maybe I'm just lucky today. But it turns out, no. Yeah, what a lot of places do is grind up regular beef and then add a bunch of fat to it to mimic the richness of Wagyu beef. Because it's already ground, you know, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. I bet it was still good, though. I mean, it was delicious. It was delicious, but still. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I I was just thinking I haven't gotten to use any of our fun words that we spent so much of last season talking about. Like crudo and ceviche. crudo. Yeah. There's lots of them this season, too. Uh, This is not a Top Chef podcast. This is a movie (laughs) podcast. So, Nash, why don't you tell us something you watched recently that you uh, thought would be interesting to chat about on the Blast Zone here? Okay. So, in truth, I don't uh, consume a ton of media anymore. uh, But I was like, you know what? I have to stay culturally relevant. And so I'm going to watch the show that everybody's talking about five or six years ago. Uh, I started watching The Walking Dead. So, oh, you just started. Why? I thought you were just like okay, talking about so, a recent episode. You just no, got into the beginning. No, I'm a binge watcher. So I started it probably about a month ago. I made it to season seven, episode one, and I have called it quits on The Walking Dead. Frankly, whatever <laughs> happens at this point, I will never know. That's a lot That's of fair. seasons. It's a lot of seasons. It's a gross amount of television in like four weeks. I gave up long before you did, but I watched it week to week, which is even more frustrating, I think. How did anyone watch it? It's not a good show. It's not well written or paced. Episodes happen that have no impact on the rest of the story. And it's not a show like Atlanta where you can kind of get away with that because you're saying something bigger culturally. No, it's, it's a crappy show, man. I feel like they were like, what if people really liked gore? And that was the only thing that they ever liked about television. You know what I mean? This was for a specific niche of person. And that person is also watching murder porn. You know what I mean? Like there was just a lot of viscera (laughs) for no purpose at all. 
But then it has all these weird soap opera for guys element, like professional wrestling to an extent, because there's like a lot of interpersonal drama, but it's not fleshed out well. It's like a soap opera in the sense that it just repeats the same kind of story beats over and over with different characters. Yeah, it was truly atrocious. The reason I stopped watching in season seven, episode one, was because Rick finally meets the big, bad, scary dude that meets him in the woods. And he's like impossibly bad. You know what I mean? Like he's not even believably a dick. He's just like somehow a supervillain. And we're expected to swallow that this guy has the resources to be a supervillain. I'll stop talking about him in a second. I promise. He drives (laughs) me insane, though. But like the whole premise of season seven, episode one, is that Rick is getting kicked while he's down. He's going to be a whipped dog. And he spends all six seasons proving that he's not that like he ripped a dude's throat out once Hmm. with his teeth like mcgruber throat ripping wait is the big bad in season seven is that negan yeah that's negan Spoiler alert, he's like a hero now yes, in the current yes, iteration yes. of the show. <laughs> okay, so, right? So, like, one of the characters that he kills in Season 7, Episode 1 is the partner of one of the other characters that survives. And he beats this person to death huh, in front bat. of this other person, right? <laughs> and then, later on, we're expected to swallow this buddy cop relationship between Negan and the person whose partner he murdered. You know what I mean? Like, huh. they have their own spinoff now. It's a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch, yeah. That's why... They know you don't care about plots or storylines or like even dialogue at all. They were like, we can definitely give those two a spinoff and everyone will be like, I accept this. Right. They just need content. They don't care if it's good or what it is. Ian, I think I might have stepped on your show and tell a tiny bit. Just a little. uh, The small reference. What do you got for us? I watched the first few episodes of Atlanta season three. It took a while. I I remember that show and I remember that was my favorite thing. And then they (laughs) didn't come around for a while because there was a pandemic and it's hard to make shows. And they're back and it's as good as ever. I mean, I think it's spooky as hell. It's so wonderfully written and filmed and acted. And uh, I think it's the best thing on television. It sets the bar so high that I feel like every other show and movie being made today has to look at the show and go, oh, we got to try to get to where they are because that's the good stuff. Yeah, I'm as far as you are. I haven't seen episode four, which is out as of this recording, but just came out last night. So I'm up to episode three. I'm obviously digging it. I was a huge fan of it. It's first go around, but that was three and a half years ago. Like you said, I mean, it's been gone and I did not rewatch the series ahead of this season. So I'm just like slowly remembering all the things I loved about it. All the good things. Yeah. It's fun to reminisce. Yeah, it is. And I'm excited to see where the season goes because I think it's maybe taking like a shape that I can kind of discern, but also it's very like free floating like Atlanta tends to be. So I'm not sure what the big statement is yet, but I'm excited to find out. I'm doing a, I thought it was a mini series, but I guess it's just got renewed for a season two. It's a little show called The Tourist which is on HBO Max if you're in the if you're in the colonies as Nash would say cuz she's british but it was a bbc show about a australian well i don't know if he's australian but in australia okay. the titular tourist played by Jamie Dornan of 50 shades of grey fame but he's a much better actor than that he was really good in barb and star go to vista del mar that came out during the pandemic hmm. and he was in a tv show called the fall that's really good And it's just, he's got amnesia and people seem to be out to kill him and he's trying to piece together why. It's got a great cast, got Damon Harriman, who I loved in both Quarry and Justified. He's a good little... Australian. You've, you've always got a justified actor. person to reference on this show. I almost <laughs> made it a segment for every movie we cover. Did someone from this movie also <laughs> appear on Justified? And you know what? I fucking forgot, but I'm going to start doing it again because <laughs> I swear every movie has somebody that played a role on Justified in it. I found a website where you can like compare two things and see who overlaps. Oh, yeah. So it's a quick thing to do. But yeah, The Tourist, it's coming back for season two. I'm not even done with season one yet, so I don't know what happens, but I got two episodes left to go. 
and highly recommend it if you like some pulpy thriller with kind of a mean streak, but also really funny at times. Check it out. Yeah, it's good stuff. But uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Nash, I'm going to give you the floor for a second because I sent you the movies we plan to cover and you jumped at Big Trouble. What is it about this movie that enraptures you so? Okay, so my favorite, and this is true, like my favorite part of this movie is Kurt Russell, Mainly because I'm not totally sure he understood that he was filming a movie, but also just because they make him such a believable idiot. You know what I mean? Like, you're not like, oh, this character is stupid and it's for comic relief. Where his stupidity comes from is very like this would be me if I found myself in an action movie. I would do a desk pop and accidentally shoot out the ceiling and knock myself unconscious. That's a thing that would happen to me. (laughs) And so I find that very endearing. And you don't see that a lot in any movie at all anymore. I just want to point out that you call just shooting in the air a desk pop, which is uh, pretty special and obvious homage (laughs) to the other guys. I I enjoy that. But yeah, he does a lot to like subvert the white savior uh, trope that was so common in movies, especially back then, by just being a raging idiot throughout the entire thing. And I love it. It's incredible. What an incredible, like, I want to know if Kurt understood that was his role and they were like, you're going to come in here and just sort of fuck things up. Like every once in a while, you'll have a moment which is cool and that'll be it. Or if they were just like, do you, bud? You know what I mean? You know what? I wonder because the uh, maybe stepping on some of like the behind the scenes tidbits we like to drop at the end, but let's do some up front. The two other people that were considered for Jack Burton were Clint Eastwood and Jack Nicholson. And I can't see either of those people (laughs) embodying the role with that kind of like, I don't know, self-parody. So Jack, Jack could get close. Clint Eastwood, it would be very clumsy and weird. Jack back then, maybe. Yeah, when he was a little older. I feel like he became more crotchety. I don't know. Did Jack do action films? I don't know. He did some borderline action stuff. I mean, Batman, I guess, kind of counts. That was three years after this. I think Jack could have maybe done it, but it would have seemed a little intellectual. You know what I mean? We would have been forced to accept that he was just a smart dude who didn't have a certain something. I think only Kurt Russell could have carried this, like, super confident, but also just not really with it. Yeah, because Nicholson plays the outsiders who are a little bit wise when they're looking in on the scene that they're in and they have some perspective that the other characters don't. And Jack Burton, as played by Kurt Russell, has no perspective. He's just like, what's going on? What do I do now? Like, he's just a dope and it's beautiful. (laughs) He's only involved because he wants his money that he won in a silly bet with Wang. So he has no vested interest in this whole conflict and his truck. Yeah, yeah. Well, my truck back. What was your uh, relationship with this movie, Ian? I know you were at least familiar with it. Did you watch it when you were younger? So I thought I had watched it as a teen. Like it was definitely a very familiar title and something that I would have seen or maybe rented on VHS cassettes when they did that kind of thing. Like the imagery was super familiar. But then when I watched it this week, I'm like, oh, you know what? The story, none of these story beats are familiar. And it might be because the movie just doesn't have a very strong story. It has a lot of things that happen one after another. So I didn't see anything coming. I took it in really pretty new. And that was a problem. We'll get into it as we go. This movie is not good on the first watch. But on subsequent watches, it might be great. I don't know. We'll have to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, I was familiar with Jack Burton as a character only because like a weirdly large amount of 40 to like 50 year old dudes have him as their profile picture on Twitter. I've noticed (laughs) and like I don't know if he's the character you want to have as your profile picture from this movie. Like he's kind of a dope, like we said, like give me an egg Shen profile picture over Jack Burton any day because that guy fucking rules. (laughs) Yeah, I knew I'd never seen this movie, but it was kind of talked about in uh, revered tones, especially among carpenter heads. Or Carpenter Ants. That's what she calls fans. 
But yeah, Carpenter Ants are big fans of this movie. And, you know, it's like a poster you see on a lot of people's walls growing up. Great poster. But I had no idea going into it. And my first time around, I was like, this movie kind of sucks. And then my second time through, I was like, okay, I get it. I'm on board. I don't know if I'm going to hang the poster on my wall, but I'll watch this movie again every few years. But the thing is, it does suck. It does suck. Even Whoa. when you're like, what a great movie. You're still like, I know this sucks. <laughs> well, it's, it's obviously silly. Yes, it's a very silly movie and it's very cheesy in parts. And like when I'm watching an old movie for the first time, I have a hard time discerning what their intention was. Was it meant to be campy or like, was this just playing it straight in the 80s and that's what it looked like? Thank uh, you for this saying one, this is an old movie. <laughs> hey, it's older than me, so it automatically qualifies. Yeah, this is a very old movie. but It's pretty old. Uh, I mean. Yeah, it's 35 years old at this point. Okay. It's just very old. It's a very it's old. <laughs> just I'll be 35 in July. Just shove it in one more time. Yeah, it belongs in a museum, some kind of his history museum. We got to remember, this was the early days of film when John Carpenter was working. So. Right. This was actually the first <laughs> movie with recorded dialogue. It was the oh. first talkie. Double feature, The Jazz Singer and Big Trouble in Little China. Do you want me to go through the making of this movie? It has kind of a, yeah. a little bit of a whirlwind production and, and some controversy behind it. So it's a fun story. It's a little bit of a longer monologue. But I can dive in if you're ready. Ready. Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So the 1980s started off pretty strong for John Carpenter. He had directed The Fog in 1980 and Escape from New York in 1981, both financially successful movies. This was followed by The Thing, which was a financial and critical disaster at the time, despite now being considered one of the greatest horror slash sci-fi films of all time. Check out our episode on it for more. Yeah, fuck you too! Christine was his next movie and was received lukewarmly by critics and audiences, getting mixed reviews and barely doubling its budget, but being viewed as somewhat of a return to form for Carpenter. He would follow up Christine with Starman, a critical hit that was a commercial failure, earning just $28 million against a $24 million budget. Carpenter wasn't quite ready to give up on the studio system yet, though, and signed on to direct Troubled Project Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> Troubled Project. Little joke. Based on a screenplay by first-time screenwriters Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein. The original script was a western that took place in the 1890s, with Jack Burton being a cowboy instead of a sandwich-loving truck driver. Taft Entertainment Pictures executive Paul Monash bought the script in 1982 and had them do one rewrite, but still wasn't satisfied that it was screen-ready. 20th Century Fox asked for a rewrite that would update it to a more contemporary setting, but Goldman balked and he and Weinstein were taken off the project at that point. W.D. Richter, renowned script doctor and director of future episode The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, was hired and got to work updating the setting to modern-day San Francisco. Trading in them cowboys for cafes. Richter basically started from scratch, preserving elements of main villain Lo Pan's backstory, but scrapping everything else. This led to more controversy as Fox wanted to deny Goldman and Weinstein any writing credit, seeing as how the new script was essentially a brand new story. Fox removed Goldman and Weinstein from press releases, and then the WGA got involved. It would be resolved in March 1986, just months before the movie's release, with Goldman and Weinstein getting the written-by credit and Richter getting an adaptation-by credit. The same credit was later received by Charlie Kaufman. Carpenter was offered the project in July 1985 and signed on with hopes of casting a big star in the lead role, considering Clint Eastwood and Jack Nicholson. Eventually, he would reunite with frequent collaborator Kurt Russell, who originally passed over concerns about Jack's characterization and the film's marketability. Given a reported budget of $25 million, production was fast-tracked with the intention of beating the similarly-themed The Golden Child to theaters, and Carpenter was only given 10 weeks of pre-production time before principal photography began in October 1985, with some early establishing scenes being shot in Chinatown, but most of the movie being shot on the Fox lot in Los Angeles. 
Filming wrapped in January 1986, and post-production began with a $2 million special effects budget. Effects were handled by Boss Film Studios, and they clashed with Carpenter. Who are you going to side with, the Carpenter or the Boss? Carpenter felt the studio had too much on its plate and could not deliver all the promised effects, but Richard Edlund, who was the head of Boss Film Studios, disputed this, saying the studio's workload was fine and that they were very excited about the movie, but the $2 million allotted was low for what the movie required. Released on July 2nd, 1986, the movie opened in 12th place. 12th. 1-2. T-H. P-L-A-C-E. Earning just $2.7 million. It would go on to earn just $11 million in its entire theatrical run. Carpenter and Russell believe audiences were waiting for James Cameron's Aliens to get their sci-fi action fix, and Big Trouble was overshadowed in the hype. Reviews were mixed at the time, but the film has become a massive cult classic, developing a reputation as an underseen and underappreciated gem. Boom. That was a mouthful. It's hard to see this movie when David Lopan has blinded you with <laughs> jets of blue fire coming out of his eyes and his mouth. Just throw some street water in them and then you'll be fixed. Give me some of that pothole water. That feels good on my eyeballs. <laughs> Very different movie if his name is like Dave Lopan. I feel like that would have been even funnier. Jack calls him Dave at least one time, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. It's, it's a strange choice to give him a weirdly contemporary first name, considering he's supposed to be, you know, an ancient evil being. An ancient wizard, yes, along the lines of Stephen Gandalf. <laughs> Not many people know his first name either. Phil Saruman, another lesser known first name wizard. David Bowie. Yeah. Real life wizard. So yeah, that's the story of this production. Carpenter swore off studios after this movie came out. But then of course, you know, he went back because that's where well, the money is. He's an ornery dude. Yeah. He seems to clash with studios, but he also will praise them when they do right by him. He had really nice things to say about the studio when he made Village of the Damned, which I thought was not going to be the case, even because that movie was a huge bomb, too. So I feel like he doesn't air out his dirty laundry unless it's warranted, at mm. least like or maybe he just got, you know, cuddlier in his old age. So question, do we think the $2 million budget was too low or were the expectations too high? Where do we fall in that? Well, it's 1986. So, sure is. Yeah, I, I don't know what more money could have gotten them. Mm. But then Aliens comes out, you know, two weeks after this. And Aliens still looks pretty good by today's standards. So, yeah. Yeah. Like a different aesthetic. I mean, you could have saved money just by like, cut some things out. Do we need the floating eyeball creature? No, is he like fun? He's super fun. I mean, he's horrifying to look at. <laughs> it's incredibly whimsical. But like, if you scratch him from the movie, nothing changes. Except and, and he like, was their biggest uh, their biggest challenge because he was a very complicated little like puppet guy. So he, I think most of the effects budget went to that stupid little dude who really just kind of looks like like Kirby ate Slimer. I was you thinking know, if Meatwad were horrifying. <laughs> yeah, he's got some Meatwad energy to him too. I love you guys' metaphors. For for me, he's a beholder. He's right out of the Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual, which I probably owned a copy of back in 1986. Much to my chagrin, I'm not a and d guy. I always wanted to get into it, but never did. So I don't get that reference, but I trust you. Beholders were these scary things, except I think they would turn you to stone if you looked into one of those eyes. They didn't just carry messages from David. Dave. Davy boy. We're all over the place tonight. It's Friday. This is our usual recording day, though, so I don't know if that excuse works. Oh, fair. Two million dollars. Yeah, I don't think you adjust the effects. I think you adjust the scope of it. Like Ian said, you don't need all this. Like there there are some cool sequences, like when they're swimming through that little a chamber of dead bodies and all the skeletons yeah. are chained up. But like, what did that really add? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and I don't know if even that was special effects. That seemed like the props team. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, did Richard Edlund have a hand in that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. 
Or maybe they just found a room with some skeletons in there. Like, let's fill it with water. Yeah, we can legit. use this. Yeah, that's real gonzo filmmaking. Because they're all it. over the Fox lot. You just have to know where to look. <laughs> yeah. I know where the bodies are buried. But is, I've never been to San Francisco. Is the underneath of San Francisco basically like a, yes. like Venice? I've been to San Francisco and that is, no, of course not. That is not accurate in any way. Because the city Francisco. had a lot of like underwater, underland yeah. tunnel scenes. Some catacombs, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It got really fantasy movie there, right? Yeah. Yeah. It felt like the Goonies. Like a Goonies or a Mines of Moria thing. The 13th Warrior vibes. Oh, see, I was thinking like the Labyrinth. Yeah. You know? A Labyrinth, sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, all better movies. No, uh, not Labyrinth. I think I prefer this over Labyrinth. No, don't uh, say that to my face. You know, you know what movie bombed? Did it? So, I'm pretty sure. Hold on, clicky. If it bombed, we can go immediately into the Labyrinth episode. Oh, yeah. It, you know? it had a $25 million budget. It made 13. It almost had the same exact financials as this movie. And it came out the same year. Okay, well, I will see you next Friday. Yeah, she's claiming all the movies. This came out the week before this. What? Oh my god! Wow, Labyrinth came out a week before Big Trouble in Little China. Wow! What are the odds? That is uh, weird. Yeah, directed by Jim Henson, of course. I guess it does make sense graphics-wise, because I think the eyeball monster sort of could have easily been in the Labyrinth. Yeah, you get some of those vibes for sure. Similar puppeteering styles. And it says something about the aesthetic of the time, which our friends on the Blank Check podcast, when they did an episode about this movie, were commenting on, yeah, Jim Henson making Labyrinth. There was a whole sort of set of movies with little fantasy interjections Mm -hmm. that had some practical effects in puppetry. Legend was probably around this time too, right? Yeah, Legend. And they all bombed. And it's like all these big filmmakers thought that was what people wanted and they didn't but we liked the fact that they tried yeah fantasy movies did not have a great track record up until almost lord of the rings i guess kind of pulled it out of a a decades-long slump it's kind of like pirate movies and pirates of the caribbean like they all kind of flopped i know it's really sort of funny that johnny depp is in this film what david lopan is literally johnny depp (laughs) did you not know that (laughs) how many bracelets did he have on during his at least eight then for a formal affair like that johnny depp pulls out at least eight bracelets and five scarves Man, I can't wait to talk about Lopan's wedding because mm. that looked like a fucking rocking ass time. But oh, yeah. do you want to walk us through the first third of the movie, Ian? Yeah, let's jump in so we can talk about the good dumb stuff that happens. <laughs> yes. yes, sir. So Jack Burton, played by Kurt Russell, is a truck driver. After making a delivery in San Francisco's Chinatown, Jack beats his friend Wang, played by Dennis Dunn, in a back alley dominoes game. Then he drives him to the airport to pick up Wang's fiance, Mao Yin. But Mao Yin is kidnapped by an evil street gang with weird glasses. Then the guys go back to an alley in Chinatown where they get caught in the middle of a fight between rival warrior clans. The bad guy, Wing Kong clan, has three supernatural warriors on their side called the Three Storms, plus an ancient wizard named David Lopan, played by James Hong. (laughs) Jack and Wang have to abandon the truck and flee for their lives. Love how this movie starts. Just the 20th Century Fox logo and then like, bam, we're one-on-one with a conversation with Egg Shen. Like, we don't get any credits, no music, no no nothing, no lead-in. Yeah. No foreplay. They just stick it right in. And it's kind of noir. It's a police interview in a wood paneled office with slats of light crisscrossing his face. Kevin Spacey's drinking a cup of coffee. Yeah, it's a whole different movie. (laughs) I do like kind of the, the way it sets up Jack Burton as this mythical figure with what Egg's saying. And then as the movie goes on, you slowly realize like he's bullshitting you and like none of this is true. Yeah, that's one of the most disorienting things about this movie because Jack Burton is not really a hero. And yet I thought he was through the first watch. I thought he was supposed to be. And so it was very frustrating and very like his jokes are funny, but you're like, but that's not who he is. And they told me from the beginning, he's their hero. He's the guy that they protect at all costs. And he's not. 
He's the patsy. You don't realize it until watching it twice and, and analyzing it, that Egg Shen was fucking with the DA. By pretending to stick up for Jack Burton, he was throwing him under the bus so they wouldn't look into what's really going on in Chinatown. Like, oh, it's the white truck driver. That's the real guy you should go after. Which is such a smart way to, to frame it, but it is like a little high-minded for what this movie yeah, is presenting way, to you at like a surface level. Way too clever. You'd never suspected of doing that. <laughs> right. And then like that scene ends and I wonder if that was like tacked on because it doesn't really feel like a traditional beginning yeah. for this type of movie. You know, the stuff with Jack and the truck feels like where this movie was meant to begin and then Carpenter got a little filmmaker on it all. Yeah. Porkchop Express is where we should have started. <laughs> yeah. Not that we're, not where we should have. I really like this now <laughs> that I kind of understand it, but it didn't feel like a natural place to start. Instead, we're in the Porkchop Express with... Uh, I just put it together right now. I was like, Porkchop Express obviously refers to Jack's weird pork chop delivery. I, I meant his verbal delivery. It represents his actual delivery. The guy's dropping off pigs. I didn't notice that till the second time through. Yeah, he's, he's dropping off little piglets. I thought he was dropping off like sides of beef, but they're cute little piggies being lifted out of his truck. And I only saw it on the second watch. You're not going to get any sympathy out of Nash. She literally has a farm where she raises animal for slaughter. He delivers <laughs> but, them to me, actually. But I think one of the things that I'm most struck by, like, when you first start to meet Jack is, I mean, maybe this is just right now, right? So it's 2022. This movie was 1986. I was like, that man in that aesthetic could literally be anyone in my life. You know what I mean? Like he looks like a hipster dude in 22, you know, it was like, wow, so fast. He's, he's philosophizing all over the CB radio. And then he puts it down he picks up a sandwich, big old submarine sandwich. So he's going back and forth between like bites of the sandwich, the CB radio and just saying bullshit. Nobody cares about he it might be the first podcaster. I agree. Yeah. He really kind of nailed the aesthetic way back in 1986. Kudos to John Carpenter. Does this meat delivery company not have an HR? Like who would listen to this man talk on their work radio for this? I'd be like, Jack, can you <laughs> right. just fucking button it up, my man? Like we're all working. We don't have to listen to this. People need that channel for work related this shit. Is the like, safety get out of problem. here, man. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Keep the channels Plus, clean, dude. He's doing all this distracted driving on the Golden Gate Bridge. I've driven on the Golden Gate Bridge. It's terrifying. It's extremely busy. He's driving a big rig over it and just not paying attention to the road at all. It's a miracle. And then he complains about his insurance premiums later. Like, no fucking wonder. You've probably been yeah. in 15 accidents this year. He Does he even have a hand on the wheel? Anytime he drives in this entire film, he's like looking over. Driving is like his secondary option. Everything else is takes a backseat. He's, he's talking into the CB mic and then he does a full-on mic drop. Each time he finishes a line, he's like, so I told him the check's in the mail and he does a mic drop into his own lap and then his other hand comes up to its mouth and it's filled with that giant sandwich he's like wait a minute was he driving at all this whole time he's doing the driving with the knees in yeah. a big rig which is terrifying definitely uh, is but it does give us a vibe of what to expect from Jack oh, yeah. Burton he's properly characterized I would say throughout the rest yes. of the movie agreed and it's like dusk in a rainstorm right. <laughs> he's got his, his dark Ray-Bans on but then by the time he's done gambling it's morning oh, yeah. so what he lives with that truck that's like his truck he yeah. takes it home with him at night. He doesn't have to go back to the yard. He just parks oh, yeah. it in Chinatown and then Dude. gets drunk and gambles all night. And then so he... I've been informed <laughs> that truck drivers in the 80s sometimes owned their own truck, which explains why he was a little bit. That's true. Oh, know, yeah. He was definitely an owner operator. I think it does say on the side of the door, Burton Trucking, Visalia, California, which oh, okay. is Central Valley. Mm. That's California's agricultural heartland. 
Is it the Inland Empire? When they talk about the Inland Empire? No, is Inland Empire is more south where that's all deserty. But when you go up north, oh, the okay. Central Valley of California is all agriculture, straight up gotcha. the center. Yeah, people still own their uh, trucks to, to this day. I just He didn't strike me as the kind of guy who could get up that kind of equity. But you're right, the graphics on the side. But I think that's why he was so, so attached to it. Because it was like legitimately yeah. not a nice truck. But he was like, I'm getting that truck back. Yeah, that was his life. He still shouldn't be drinking all night and then driving it. I mean, I agree. So (laughs) were we expected to swallow that he was like a heartthrob? Were we supposed to walk away and be like, oh, my God, that Jack Burton? You know what I mean? I think kind of. Yeah. I mean, Kurt Kurt Russell's handsome. Because he gets with the hot girl at the end, you know? And then he like turns her down. Holy shit. I had never seen 80s Kim Cattrall before this. And my Lord. Yeah, yeah. She's a dear yeah. eyes. We get that like a full something. on like wet tit scenario later on in this right. film. Don't think I didn't <laughs> mark the time. Nash has it bookmarked. But Jesus. yeah, I, I was, yeah, I can't even think of words to say about it because I was like, wow. I knew her as Samantha, but th- this was the first time I saw her in the 80s. She's super cute. And that really helps hold the plot together because there's almost yeah. no story or no reason for him to go on this adventure, except that he saw a hot chick at the airport and he just like didn't want to let And he wants his money. Away. Wang still hasn't paid him. Okay, but it, it's like seventeen hundred dollars, right? In nineteen eighty-six, with inflation, that's four million dollars. Nash, you have no idea how inflation dollars. works. No, but it's nothing or double, you guys. Nothing or double, and it's uh, why do they say it backwards? Fourteen hundred. It's always been double or nothing. It drives me insane every time they say nothing or double. I love it. I Maybe love they thought partner. it was like copywritten and they were like, better not risk it. It's like it's like the happy birthday song. If you, if you say it, you have to pay somebody. They couldn't yeah. clear it. The studio lawyer called down. Guys, we couldn't clear double or nothing. Don't say it. Nothing or double drove me insane throughout the first half of this movie because they say it so often, too. But I did think, the first of all, the, uh, the cutting the bottle in half gag where he's just basically setting him up to get knocked out was clever. But also, like, how good of friends are these guys? Was that? Oh, I didn't even get that. He was trying to hustle him and like. Yeah, he was trying to knock him out out so then he could just run away. Yeah. Oh, Wang's a master martial artist. We find out later. Like this guy could. He didn't just break your neck with his pinky. No, he didn't fuck up. He fucked up in the sense that he didn't realize how good Jack's reflexes were. Oh, it's all about the reflexes. Yeah. Ian, there's layers to this shit, man. Holy shit. This movie keeps getting smarter (laughs) on me. And that's how Jack wins at the end. We won't spoil what happens, but we find out he's got reflexes for days. But we also discovered that Wang is not beholden to the laws of physics, literally at, at no point. No, he's got like some puppeteers that follow him around and yeah. pull him up on wires whenever he needs. So, th- so we're in the airport and we've got probably the least intimidating street gang since Batman and Robin. These dudes with these, I don't even call them sunglasses. I don't know how what kind of UV protection they have. Uh, very strange facial wear, let's say. Yeah, oversized tanning booth goggles sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. But they're all different, right? They don't even match. They're all different. It's yeah. like, why, why bother? Because if you were hoping to blend in, I got to tell you guys, you're not understanding the point of blending in. Like now everybody's going to remember you because of the terrible glasses choice you made. Like they all went to the gag store at the mall. Like they yeah. all went to Spencer's <laughs> Gifts, but they were like, we can't get the same glasses. Like we should all get some silly glasses, but let's make them different. One of them looks like, I, I don't remember this exactly, but there's a comic out there that does like the son of you've been looking at the computer too long and the guy has like really puffy eyes from watching porn basically is the joke. <laughs> That's what he looks like. But that was intimidating. In the 80s, that was the scariest thing you could see was guys with big plastic novelty glasses on their heads and broad shouldered blazers. I can honestly not tell if you're being serious or not. Terrifying. <laughs> really horrifying. Was, Shoulder pads and, and weird glasses. Yeah. I was one. The so peak was, of alpha male. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Think of the beat it video, how scary those gangsters were. Same vibe. Doing the shimmy shake. I don't know why, why didn't one guy just let go of the other guy's hand and stab him? Like, <laughs> that seems they so much easier. Them together. They wound a little cord. That's right. Him. That's right. They did tie him. I thought they were just holding hands. I haven't watched <laughs> the beat it video lately. 
excuse me. <laughs> yeah. And then it is confusing. Are they there for mm-hmm. Gracie Law, which is the Kim Cattrall character? Who are they after and why? And how does the mix up happen here? You said it didn't become clear to you until your second viewing. I say it's still not clear to me. It's there. It's one of these things in the movie, like you just informed me with the reflex thing, where they actually connect all the dots, but it's really hard to connect them in your head, especially on the first watch. The Lords of Death are there just for your average kidnapping into sexual slavery. And so they want that other girl that Gracie's there for. You're run-of-the-mill. Yeah. Yeah. And then in a very sloppy kind of way, the shit starts to go down because Jack starts butting his nose in the kidnapping and they just go, it's almost like an overdub line where they go like, get her, get the other girl. And then they grab Mao Yin instead of the girl they wanted. And then that's how it becomes serious. Yeah, that's complicated. That's again, the movie may be asking a little too much of the audience for what this is. And it probably wasn't necessary. Why not just capture Mao Yin? She was another Chinese woman showing up at the airport who could have been the victim of these street gangs. Right. The, the the whole fake out aspect of it is a little too much. Especially because who we're getting this from, right? Our main character is not a genius. What? No. I didn't want to be too harsh. <laughs> but it leads to another one of the problems with the film is that then, because a bunch of confusing shit happened, they always got to go back to somebody's back room or apartment or whatever and just sit around and talk it through for five mm-hmm. minutes to try to straighten everybody out on what's going on. It's the Ghostbusters thing. Yeah, exactly. What'd you call in Ghostbusters? They have the ketchup scene? That was like fallout scenes, but this is more like yeah. exposition because that was like emotional fallout. Oh, I feel so bad about what just happened. This is more like Jack is rightfully going, well, I don't understand what happened. What, do you, what, what is this? What was that thing we just saw? And then somebody tells him. And everyone has such detailed knowledge about these old legends and myths. <laughs> I like, I don't know if you ask me like the gist of a myth I learned as a kid, I could probably give you the broad overview, but I don't remember the specific details as vividly as everyone in this movie does, which is impressive for them. Yeah. And they're pretty old, but Egg's like a wizard, so I guess he doesn't count. I mean, Egg's the one who should enlighten them because he's a mystic, but like Wang's uncle, they all know a lot of stuff that they don't even want to tell Jack. And it's funny because that, again, is another subversive part of the movie that you don't necessarily get on the first watch, is that as much exposition as they're doing, they're holding back the real stuff because they keep telling Jack, no, you don't need to know, or it's better if you don't know. They keep right. like holding back the key parts of the myth. So they spend enough time so that you can kind of get what's going from beat to beat, but they never really, I guess eventually Lopan explains the nature of his curse. Yeah, kind of. But again, yeah. does it really matter? Doesn't matter <laughs> like, by what that time. It yeah. It's totally meaningless. Yeah. So then we get the alley fight scene, which I was a little taken aback because everyone's wearing these kind of silly outfits or not silly, but you know, they're color coordinated. I feel like gangs being coordinated to that degree where they have like the exact matching outfits on is always a little silly, but then like they just start pulling out machine guns and literally murdering each other, which is (laughs) not what I expected. (laughs) Like I thought there would be more like hand to hand combat, like somebody getting hit with a bat or something like that. But no, they just start literally murdering in cold blood. Well, They do a round of machine guns. And then there's a point where they're like, all the bullets are gone, throw them down, start swinging the knives. And then the knives and the axes go into action. So there's levels to it. It's weird that it starts with guns and then escalates to knives. It's, it's like the backwards way of the, the line from the Untouchables. If you shoot at him with a gun and then you <laughs> yeah. bullets left, he's going to get a knife. And if you miss him <laughs> with a knife, he's got one of those retractable back scratchers. He's going to come <laughs> at you. Because one of the storm has uh, a retractable back scratcher as his weapon, I'm pretty sure. You know, the ones that are like the hands. The, yeah. Yeah. The little hands. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. like salad forks. There's ones, for like, a they're ones like you would use to scratch your back. Yeah. yeah. On a, like yeah. an antenna stock. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're <laughs> telescoping. Extend, they're extended. Telescopic. Yeah. Yes, yeah. there you go. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, logistically, I've never been to San Francisco. I feel like this is the second time I've had to say that now. But like, yeah. if you live in downtown San Francisco and your gang of 50 dudes 
has a street fight with another gang of 50 dudes. And it's like a demonstrative event. Like Mm -hmm. you're all dressed the same. There's like a big, it's like a soccer match, right? Mm. There at no point someone from like a street over is like, Hey, what are you? Oh, don't go down that street. You know what I mean? What are we doing here? Does no one else live in San Francisco is my question. I took it as like the Chinatown culture was just very insular at the time. And they didn't want to like, you know, they knew this was going to happen and they were like, we're just going to let it go. It's not our We're talking about (laughs) machine gun fire and not even one cop in San Francisco is like, I should check that out. <laughs> in my version, you can't hear that on the street. So that oh. passing into that alley after a couple turns, you're not in the regular soundproof. world anymore. You're through the looking glass. You are in the subterranean version where the sky is different because obviously you're on a soundstage for one thing, but like right. it's no longer part of the same world. You're in the mystical part of Chinatown and there is no crossover between the SFPD and, and that part of town. Ian said, forget it, Nash. It's Chinatown. Yeah. Yeah, just don't worry. You're pretty little head about it. Somebody got that reference, right? That's, yeah. The famous last lines from Chinatown, except I replaced Nash with Jake. Thanks, buddy. Cut out the part where I explain it. Okay, thanks. I'll just pretend I got it the whole time. Forget it, Marge! It's Chinatown! Anything else from the section we need to go over, or can we move on to the middle of the movie? I kind of don't want to run over the part where Jack literally ran him over with a car. Because he looks so goofy. He's just standing there making a weird face, and then he falls like one of those clowns. He used to be able to, like, hit that were inflatable and they would like bounce back and pop back up. Uh, He reminded me of nothing more than that. They didn't do the phasing thing. And it's like, this is the big bad of this film. Right. They're not really building him up to be that intimidating (laughs) with scenes like that. But then he's just scary. And James Hong is amazing. I mean, the James Hong puppet that got run over was kind of (laughs) goofy. But when he stood up and got to act again, he was amazing. But like, why didn't he phase through the truck to be mystical instead of thumping under the truck and then popping up? (laughs) I guess maybe because he knew Jack would like 100% be sure he ran him over and then see that he's still fine. If he phases through the truck, he'd be like, oh, maybe he sidestepped it at the last minute or, Uh you know. I think he wanted them to know. He wanted them to hear the thump and and get scared, yeah. Yeah, that's that's my take on it. Listen, Nash, we've already discovered this movie is way smarter than we thought, so. That's true, that's true. I'm a carpenter ant. I'm not putting anything past the man. He he knows his stuff. Coining this phrase now, I'm going to make it. We've got lots of carpenter movies we can cover, so I'm going to bring it up often. The man's movies just don't make money. I don't know why. I know why, but we won't get into it. (laughs) Nashley, how dare you? You're going to get in so much trouble. This movie has so many fans. I know. That's true. You're married to one, I'm pretty sure. I am. Come for me, fans. That's what I have to say. I also love this movie. I just can't explain why I love it because it's terrible. That's fair. That's what love is. You don't have to explain why you feel the things you feel. It's not very rational. It's not. All right, I'm going to walk us through the middle of the movie. You ready? Let's hear it. Jack and Wang go back to Wang's restaurant where they sit around and talk with lawyer Gracie Law, (laughs) played by Kim Cattrall. Wang's friend Eddie and his uncle Chu. The street gang has taken Miao Yin to a brothel, so Jack and friends make a plan to try to break her out. But while Jack is infiltrating the place, the storms attack and carry Miao Yin away. The gang regroups and decides Miao Yin must have been taken to David Lopan's trading company headquarters. So Wang and Jack sneak in disguised as telephone technicians. But Lopan's storm henchmen quickly capture our heroes. While waiting, the others meet with local tour bus driver and mystic Egg Shen, played by Victor Wong, who tells them it's time to marshal their forces against Lopan. Meanwhile, inside his headquarters, an impossibly old Lopan confronts Jack and Wang and tells them how by marrying a green-eyed woman, he will finally break the ancient curse on him. 
The other friends show up at Lopan's place and are immediately captured, but Jack and Wang engineer a breakout, escaping with all the women except for Mao Yin and Gracie, who is captured at the last minute by a hairy monster. Yep. The real star of the movie. Harry and the Hendersons look a motherfucker. Yeah. This guy's creepy. <laughs> That's the action figure that I want. I'm sure they have one. Yeah. There's a lot of merch around this movie. We got to talk about Victor Wong as Egg Shen, because first of all, this guy rules. Also the grandpa from Three Ninjas. Oh, okay. Don't, don't ever forget that. He was a pretty important journalist, too, before he became an actor he invented the photojournalistic essay damn you know where you go and and take photographs and then kind of narrate it with your your writing that was his thing he started that he was the first person to do it apparently wow what a dude thank you victor such a charismatic actor i love just seeing his face on screen you're like what does this guy have to say just tell me more things i know you're drawn to him immediately yeah he's a good actor he didn't have a ton of roles throughout his life you know he posited that his cerebral palsy which he was stricken with during his journalism career kind of killed his journalism career and also made him tougher to cast in certain roles. So he would kind of get roles when directors were a little more uh, progressive thinking, but a lot of people wouldn't cast him because of that, which is sad. But yeah, he fucking rules. So I I just wanted to give him his proper dues for not only being a great actor, but apparently a very important journalist in the history of journalism. Damn, dude. What what a dude. What What a a dude. You go into this movie, it's an 80s movie. It has all these stereotypical themes and characters. And you go, oh, this could be dangerous ground. There are weird things like this guy's name and the name of his tour yeah. bus company, Egg Foo Young Tours. And his name is Egg. And like, what are they trying to do with the names? And you're like, ooh, wh- where are we going there? But the characters, the Chinese American characters and Chinese characters are all the heroes and the most competent and capable people in this film. So in that sense, it gives them the agency and the power that they need to stand on their own. But also we have white characters whose names directly tell us what they do for a living. Like Like Gracie Gracie Law. Law. (laughs) She's graceful and she practices law. Hell yeah. And then Margot, just Margot. Just (laughs) Margot. Where the fuck does Margot come from in this movie? Like I could not track why we were talking to her at that point. Did I miss a scene? They're just in the car outside the brothel? I think she comes in with Gracie at some point, but it's just like, Yeah, why? she's talking to Gracie as if she's narrating her own internal dialogue. She's like, oh God, do I have to go in there? I don't want to go in there. I don't want to, but I'll do it for a story. This could be my big break. I was like, who are you talking to? <laughs> These are thoughts you have by yourself. Like you don't need to share them with the outside world. But that's that's Kate Burton, who's like still a very prominent actress. She's on the dropout era oh. right now. So she's still doing good work. So good for her. Favorite of yours. Yeah. Yeah. She's kind of an exposition machine. At least that seems to be some of why they would bring her in. Because she's like, David Lopan. You mean the David Lopan, who is chairman of the Wing Chung <laughs> Trading Company and the most reclusive CEO in American business? Or I forgot what she says, but there's a lot of information dumping that she's responsible for. Right. But I feel like they're just like, all right, we got to get my reporter friend looped in on this because she can help us break the story. Like, no, you just cut to Gracie and Margot in a car. And they're like, you can figure it out, dummy. But also, what? <laughs> story are we dropping because you have no information right now and you have no idea what you're doing what was she going to write about and then they got murdered because i feel like the commotion at the airport might have been a big enough story where you could kind of tie it into that because there was like a big dust up at the airport which i assume that was sfo kidnapping related to human trafficking i mean it's got the bones of a story if only she could get the scoop but she doesn't want to go in there ian but she'll do it (laughs) then she follows them she already had the scoop she could have just gone home and written that like, why does she go on this adventure at all? Look, Nash, I know you, you can't get it because you're not a journalist That's like true. Victor Wong and Margot. 
But when you smell a story, you don't quit until you got the whole the whole thing, <laughs> even though you clearly hate all of this that's happening. But you know what? I understand the inner dialogue in like a post pandemic America. Like I don't wander around with my mask on unless I'm inside a store. So I have a tendency to talk to myself now. So I can understand that part. <laughs> I have a bigger beef with her, like writing in a diary that this is a very important story that she's got while she's literally in jail. Who are you writing that to? Why do you have a pen? Right. And she's like not tied up at all. Yeah, that's, and then no, they're Gracie, very gentle with that. Yeah. But Gracie's like hogtied with something in her mouth. That is a really weird scene because it starts out where she's just having a good old time in jail, just working on her journal, like, lying on a comfy cot. And then you look over to the next cell and Kim Cattrall is hogtied and chained to the ceiling. And you're like, what the fuck is that? And then and I think Margot explains it by going, she's a handful or something like she brought that on herself because she was being uh, unruly in jail and she should have just been chill. Like me. I just wanted some pen and paper so I could write down the scoop that no one's going to read because also I'm being imprisoned by them. Yeah. It's like, I don't know why they keep her alive. They clearly have no problem killing people and yeah. no one wants to marry her. Sorry, Margaret. girl, and I feel bad. Wait, she doesn't hook well, up with yeah. Eddie or no, who hooks up with? No, she hooks up with somebody. She's at definitely end, horny yeah. at one point at the end. So yeah, there's a lot of horniness in this movie. The awkward dude that ends up like running around with them also for very little purpose. Yeah. I just feel like we really could have slimmed the cast down. You know what I mean? I feel like in a lot of movies, you're like, there are not enough people to make this believable that this was like a crew event or that we're fighting a battle. But this one had the opposite problem. Like there's too many people for no Yeah, point. it's kind of almost like, oh, we know we've got two different head, but we got a bra and a headquarters and we need to engineer plots somebody goes in been somebody stays out <laughs> yeah. and so like oh we need enough people to go in and still have three people on the outside so who's going to be the third person let's bring eddie in the mater d and have him also be a kung fu master well then let's talk about infiltrating lopan's headquarters because the what's up what's up with this little trick they used to get in the door the uh, phone company <laughs> trick they're posing as repairmen how did they pull this that off? was so cheap they have one handset <laughs> not even a piece of cable or wire or anything just a phone that they yanked out of the wall and only one of them has it they don't have a bag a backpack a case a tool anything they're wearing denim jackets not even a nary a screwdriver to be seen yeah they didn't no. do the coveralls thing or the van trick or any of that stuff they're just like they're still wearing their denim jackets jack's in his renaissance fair knee-high suede lace-up boots and they're like oh of course we're the phone guys let us walk through we'll be right back if they been like captured immediately it would have been funnier it was yeah. just, it definitely would have made some more sense do we think the boots is like a holdover from when this was a western and they just couldn't figure <laughs> out a way to let it go those were actually Kurt Russell's boots he brought from home and he wouldn't make the movie unless they let him wear them. Wait, is that true? Or are you? <laughs> no, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I was like, because I would I was literally like, oh, man, that makes sense. You yeah, know? I wish it was true. I do not know. Like another thing I missed the first time around. And his surfer poncho is uh... such a dude. He's like not actually the blue collar trucker guy that you think he is. If you're just looking at his face and hearing him talk, he's wearing one of those. What do you call those ponchos? It's a very Southern California thing to me, at least. Yeah, I don't actually know. But I just found Jack Burton's uh, boots for sale for three hundred dollars so. <laughs> snap them up dude that's a bargain <laughs> probably the Pardon originals you know? probably yeah he's like a, can you still say dandy he's a bit of a dandy even though he's like a big you know truck driver with a machine uh-huh. gun and that tank yeah. top that he carefully washes in the sink of his friend's restaurant but it, that you know that makes him more of a hipster to me you know what i mean like these things are not even generic they're right. like very bespoke shits and he's <laughs> yeah. just he cares about them deeply like his shoes have weapons in them 
You know what I mean? Like, what kind yeah, of life the, was he living as a truck driver before this? How many times did he put that knife back in his boot? Because every few seconds he pulls it out of the boot. And it's like, it's back in the boot? I thought you were holding it. He just keeps it's either running. in his boot or in his mouth, like <laughs> yeah, the whole exactly. film. Army crawling with his knife in his mouth. You don't have to do that, dude. Just like leave it in your shoe. It's in your, yeah, you have a spot for it in your shoe. <laughs> it's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> he loves whipping it out of the boot, though. That's his move. Yeah. There's a knife in my boot. That's a Toy Story thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> But like, how does he even keep that knife a secret when he gets like padded down shit? They're like always weaponless, you know, and then they throw him in the dungeon. Did you see the size of the rivets on his boots? They were probably like, oh, there's another rivet. But it was like the the handle of a knife. Right. But like you keep bringing (laughs) that knife out and someone's going to be like, I wonder where he keeps that knife. You know, this is not a tactic. Oh, wow. The boots you can buy online even have the knife. I'm going to link this in the in the show notes. That's fast. Soul Path Shoes makes the boots with a knife and it's in the same hiding spot as in the movie. It's fantastic. Wow, that's a <laughs> level of detail I don't know that anyone needed. But Somebody in my high school used to wear those boots. I don't think he knew about Jack Burton, though. I think it was coincidence. Really? You think he just did it? I mean, they were also for like hippie Renaissance fair kids. And that's what he was. He was sort I of was a thinking drama like very kid. Flynn Rider, you know, like the swashbuckling hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Nash, you seemed like a Renaissance fair person, though, to be fair. What do you think of these boots? I come on this podcast to be insulted. I kind of love it. You <laughs> look like a in- Ren Fair kind of person. What does that mean? Why is uh, that an insult? I enjoy Ren Fairs, but I don't okay. dress for them. Yeah. No, well, okay. I've been to one. I dressed for one, but it was... <laughs> gotcha. Damn it. I've never been to one. <laughs> I really want to go back to one now that I eat meat, though, because I do think that there's something very primal about walking around eating a turkey so that's leg. That's the whole thing. Absolutely. It's the turkey leg. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did. I've been to one and I enjoy meat a lot. So I like going and drinking mm. meat. Okay. And but I like what like we have uh, this special cocktail. It is meat and Mountain Dew. And I'm like, <laughs> guess couldn't try a little harder, make it feel of the time. But it's called a beasting and it's delicious. Okay, is it good? Oh, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> See, I just don't like that there are some people at Red Fairs that take it too seriously. You know, like I think we should all go with our level of we understand that we're from modernity and we're having an experience. But there's always like. There's a couple attenders of the event that take it too seriously. Some dude shooting a drone out of the sky with a bow and arrow or something. Oh, yeah. No, what devilry like, is this? You know, you understand that the actors aren't going to break character because they're actors, right? So they're going to pretend that they don't know what a phone is, which is of its own thing. But there's always like guests that are like, and we've entered the gates now. You know, yeah. it's time to pretend yeah. we're actually. And it's just like <laughs> you got to you got to take one shot, though, at talking Elizabethan for a minute just and then you can let her drop. <laughs> We're all going to a Ren Fair. We're going to record our next episode wait. in person yeah. from a Renaissance Fair. Huzzah, um, I say. All right. What else do we have from this section? I have beef with the very end of this section because Gracie sticks her fucking face in some doorway that's opening as they're literally escaping. Right. And she's like, oh, like what about any of that takes you so long to not just keep moving? Like what right. about. What was behind that door that was interesting enough to linger there with a surprise look on your face and then get captured by a fucking puppet. They literally just said, like, run. Do you not have eyes? Is he a puppet? I think he's, is he a guy in a suit? I think he's a guy in a suit. It's terrible. Yeah, but his face is puppeted, right? Those aren't, like, person eyes behind a mask. Those are puppet eyes. But, yeah, it's got to be a guy, largely person in there. Oh, I did want to touch on the escaping the dungeon scene where Jack dramatically falls backwards in his wheelchair because I was reminded of nothing more than licorice pizza uh, which we just discussed as a long driving backwards down a hill scene that i was reminded of but you also pointed out that manhunter came out very soon after this movie which features a dramatically flaming 
wheelchair. You were my Michael Mann, bro. And I, I thought you would yeah. get that reference of wheelchairs going down ramps. Like, yeah, Jack wasn't on fire, like the victim of the the bad guy in Manhunter. But. And Red Dragon. It was Philip Seymour Hoffman in Red Dragon. I can't okay. remember the actor in uh, Manhunter that it was, but we'll do Manhunter eventually. That was a bomb. Yeah. And then in looking up runaway wheelchair moments, I came across Mac and Me, a very famous funny <laughs> moment. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Um, I know I'm very familiar with the Mac and me joke. Yes. Paul Rudd would take that on as his clip every time he went on Conan. And it's just this wheelchair bound kid who goes off a cliff. And uh, <laughs> it's funny. It's funnier than it funnier sounds. Because it he has a good time. And then Mac, the little imitation E.T. alien pops up and looks ridiculous into the camera. It's in the sound like that, right? Something yeah. like that. Like, Whoa. Yeah. Kind of the same sound that Jack makes the moment he kicks out of the wheelchair and lets it fall behind him into the deep well. He also goes. Whoa. But like, what a smart thing to do when you're capturing people, right? Like the wheelchair was perfect. You know, you can chain them right to it. Then it's easy to move them around. Nobody's fighting you. Yeah. That's they smart. were nice. Nice wheelchairs. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. they pampered these guys. Those are the old wooden ones, yeah. After roughing them up by shooting red rubber balls into his gut. Yeah, well. <laughs> weird interrogation tactics. So L- Lopan hires former uh, riot cops to be his guards. <laughs> they have only non-lethal ammunition. But I love that all of their, like, magic tactics are things they could actually just do. You know what I mean? Like, nothing about throwing a ball at someone was going to be hard <laughs> or, like, easier if you had magic. Or, like, in an earlier scene, none of the things that happened on, like, the parade floor where they're having the big fight out in you know downtown san francisco they could have easily just used their hands like the knife switch that they do oh yeah like it's part of the ritual where it comes from their bottom hand you could just hand it off to your other hand like you don't need magic for this you don't have to do a flip before you throw a knife at a guy you could just chuck (laughs) the knife indiana jones taught us like yeah all that stuff is uh for show and not necessary All right. Anything else from this section you wanted to talk about? You know, there's a lot of antics left. Maybe we should soldier on. Let's get to it. Bring us home. All right. Inside his headquarters, Lopan moves ahead with plans to marry both Gracie and Mao Yin, since they both have the green eyes needed to break his curse. Egg Shen leads Jack, Wang, and a team from the Good Guy Warrior Clan to once again infiltrate Lopan's lair, this time from secret tunnels beneath Chinatown. Egg gives everyone some of his magic potion to power them up for the big battle. There's a big fight, and after Jack kills Lo Pan with a knife through the forehead, the others help do away with the three storms. Wang and Mao Yin are reunited. Jack and Gracie decide to part ways for now, and Jack heads back out on the road alone. Or is he? Because Harry from Harry and the Hendersons is in the back of the truck. What? Oh, that the, scared uh... me. I feel like we need a Dewey Cox sound clip in here. Like, you can't get double married, Dewey. <laughs> Even if you're famous. It's illegal to be married to two people at the same time, Dewey. What about if you're famous? Because the whole time I was just like, so I guess like it's not a legal marriage. It's more of a mystical marriage. <laughs> yeah. It's not bound by the same laws as the rest of us. Yeah, one was the spare. He was going to kill her right away to please yeah. the demon, right? He was going to kill Gracie, right? Yeah, because he liked Mayan better. It's uh, quite a wedding, though. I would have liked to attend. Yeah, very 80s. Not yeah. very, like, <laughs> centuries old because there's, like, this giant fanged skull, but it's got green neon bulbs wrapped around everything. Very funky. I, I bet, like, the drinks there cost $35, but they're delicious, and they <laughs> involve a smoking gun. Like, it looked like a club in the meatpacking district of Manhattan, but one I would like to hang out at. It was kind of nice. And then, like, not a lot of people showed up for that wedding. It was just that one warrior clan and not a really diverse <laughs> set of guests. Right, so you could probably scheme them out of two meals because the kitchen has, you know, enough food. Be like, <laughs> I want the chicken and the fish. I'm really Oh, hungry. that's a move, like, right. yeah. All right, fine. 
We I think a lot of no shows. This scene, like when you first start to see the wedding conceptualized, the first scene I was like, is this actually a giant joke? Like the whole film has led up to this like big moment because everything about the scene is terrible, like separately and together. The set is awful. There's neon everywhere. It's like this big casino vibes, right? This wedding. Uh-huh. He's like, he knows that they are in his lair, right? The eye monster is like, hey guys, they're here. And he's like, ah, oh, they're here. And then he does nothing with that information right they just ignore it he just like lets them walk in he's like oh there are evil people here and then it pans back and there's like 20 dudes like who is protecting you it's insanity everything about it is um, i was just confused why he seemed like annoyed and surprised when they show up in the wedding because the eye guy told you they were there (laughs) and you literally acknowledged that you heard the eye guy you were like shit they're here yeah yeah he like Hoping they were there for something else. I don't Maybe know. Maybe they wouldn't find, you know, his house was kind of like a, a maze. Maybe oh, that's true. They would just get lost. They had to find the secret elevator because he was down in the basement. It's a lot of faith in your, your secret elevators to just go on with your wedding, though, knowing that there's like 15 dudes on their way to kill you. <laughs> right. And that he was still like legit surprised to see them. Like, God damn, you guys showed up. You know what I mean? Obviously, you found out 20 minutes ago that they were in house. You think they were just going to be like, I'm tired. I'm going home. Rudely, not one person brought a gift. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see one envelope, you know, nothing that looked like a KitchenAid stand mixer no. with any of our heroes. So. Although, what can you really buy an evil deity, you know, that they can't just get themselves? It's true. Well, we never sense. got to like the first dance. They would have obviously done the money dance thing and they would have been pinning yeah. envelopes on Mao Yin's dress. Ooh, if they didn't do the ritual where Lopan becomes flesh and she tried to feed him a piece of cake, would it just go through him? That's why he had to get the flesh part done. Spent a lot of money on that cake. Actually enjoy his wedding, you know? Do we ever really enjoy our weddings, though? You're so busy that day. It's not for you. It's for the guests. That's what they always say, right? That's true. All right. What is this concoction Egg gives them? Like, was this the original Red Bull? He just gives everyone a shot in the elevator? I thought it was absinthe. Ooh. The Green Fairy. Yeah. Interesting. Because they do sort of trip a little bit, right? Like, they're all sort of fucked up. They get high as fuck. Yeah, they're in that yeah. elevator. <laughs> and they're all kind of giggling and looking at each other. I love that Jackline. I feel pretty good. I'm, I'm not scared, scared at all. all. I feel kind of kind of invincible. I need me some of that, please. But we never find out exactly what it was or what it was even doing to them, right? So are we meant to just sort of accept that it's like liquid courage? Like, it was in yeah, you all along. It feels like another scene that was cut maybe of like egg brewing it up before they leave. But it works as a mystery too. There's a lot of mysticism in the movie, so I don't think everything needs to be explained. But I just want to know what it is so I can go find me some. It seems pretty good. If you want to connect the dots on this too plot-wise, you can say, well, moments later, Jack shoots into the ceiling and knocks himself out cold with a big chunk of concrete. He would not have survived that if not for the magic potion. Mm -hmm. And then you could also posit that our friend Wang, who starts flying higher and higher through the air in his showdown with wind, is it, or whatever the storm that he fights one-on-one? Like, he becomes pretty much a supernatural warrior at that point. I'm like, was that Wang all along had these powers, or maybe that was the sauce? I don't know. Oh, that's true. I forgot how often he's aerial in this scene. They get higher and higher. Pretty much I mean, the entire time. That's yeah. the joke <laughs> of the scene is that they get sillier and sillier. This president just break into the next floor. But Jack knocking himself out cold Perfect. was a big laugh for me. I was very tickled by that. It's a little bit of a trope, like the hero getting knocked out before the big battle. But then he comes to, you know, I've seen it before, like especially in Game of Thrones. It's a big plot point. But then like the guy wakes up at the end of the battle and everyone kind of tells him what happened. It's often used when you don't have the budget to film the battle scene. <laughs> but here, like they just cut to him, like laying on the ground a few times and i was like this is hilarious and then he wakes up eventually and like starts fighting i was like what was the point of that but i loved it yeah the jokes get 
more overt. And this like last third of the movie, starting in that last scene where Jack does the thing, it's like a full-on Three Stooges or cartoon moment where he opens the door and the whole gang is looking in his face and he closes it again and turns around calmly to the rest of them and says, we may be trapped. There's just some really broad comedy moments. And then it gets kookier here with the knocking out. And then he delivers his final showdown speech against the big bad guy with lipstick smeared all over his lips. And the first time I'm like, what the fuck? And then the second time I'm like, I really love how subversive this thing is. It just totally shreds Jack Burton. Yes. It's like character assassination at the highest level, but... I'm here for it. Uh, but it's not character assassination because we don't know the character. Like it's characterizing him as this buffoon, but you're just not prepared to see it the first time you watch the movie because you're expecting him to be heroic. It's just bursting the bubble that you think was being inflated, but the whole time the joke was on you and Jack. And then Egg and Lopan have their big battle where they have little video game avatars fight for them. Yeah, like telecommuting. That was, again, that was more special effects budget they probably could have saved. Was there any point right. of having them do a little avatar fight? I no, mean, was, was this was... like a Star Wars callback? Like mm. the like the 3D chess? So is that what you're thinking of? Well, what was out at this point, right? Yeah, Jedi was 83, so they were all out by now. I, don't I know. was just thinking like the ghosts, but I guess they don't really fight that much. Yeah, once you're a ghost, you can't really fight, yeah. but you kind of pop up and give advice, which is helpful. But not very threatening, I guess. (laughs) I see what you mean. I guess I was just thinking like colors and direct action was sort of giving us this like back and forth and like who was going to win color wise and opens the door for the Voldemort Harry scenes. You know what I mean? With their special little wand. Um, Yeah. Ian knows, Nash may know, that I'm really not a fan of sky beams. And one of the only tropes that takes the top, like a higher spot of my hatred is two beams of light, like battling each other. Oh, pushing and, like, back and forth. One is getting pushed towards one guy, and but then, oh no, he's pushing even harder with his mind. So now it's going back the other way. Like, it's fucking tedious and I hate it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. What a very specific thing to hate. It like comes how many more movies could that be in? Like five? I'm going to say 30. I'm going to look it up on TV Tropes and see how many I could find <laughs> okay. when we're done recording because it's way more common than you think. I don't even know what I'd call it. Like battling beams? Yeah. <laughs> like battle like, beams? Oh, you're pushing. Oh, he's winning. Push harder on your beam. And then they, maybe they But like it's always like a physical like. Fly away. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're not actually doing it. You understand like this is the point of the magic. You don't have to push it. That's doing it on its own. But I guess you do. Oh, there is a beam of war category in TV <laughs> uh-huh. Tropes. Let's see. Getting mm. fact-checked mid-episode. Examples. <laughs> film. Live action. Big Trouble Little China is top answer. Wow. The Battle Wizard. Buddha's Palm. X-Men film series has a bunch. X2. Last Stand. Apocalypse. Godzilla. Lots of Godzilla movies have it. Dark City has it. Uh, Revenge of the Sith has it. Howard the Duck has it. Stardust has it. Fantastic Four has it. Iron Man 2 has it. Damn. Am I making my point? I can picture Cyclops. Yeah. He always sort of had to do that little tug of war with his beam. And then there's a bunch of TV ones that do it, too. Damn. Okay. Fine. Your hatred is validated. Hate away. But that being included doesn't take away from my enjoyment of this final third of the movie. Because like Ian said, it just goes completely bananas and has a has a real fun time with it. Yeah. Let's talk about the ending a little bit. Let, let's ignore the creature in the back of Jack's truck here. Okay. Do you think this seemed like it was setting up a sequel, right? Further Adventures of Jack and Gracie, maybe? Yeah. They left a lot on the table. They did. They did. They sure did. Jack did. Lord knows. 80s Kim Cattrall on the table. We, we couldn't. <laughs> like, I don't know if the, I don't know if it was a sequel necessarily about their love story. Right. But it's like the whole movie was driven by Jack seeing her at an airport and being like, I'm going to put my dick in that. You know, like we're getting the whole arc because he looked at this woman in an airport. And at the end, she's like, 
basically like, yeah, fine. I'm in love with you after like nothing. Like, what are you even doing, Gracie? But he's just like, I'm good. Gotta leave him wanting more, I think is Jack's philosophy when it comes to the ladies. You gotta leave him wanting more. But how often, logistically, how often can this man get laid? You know what I mean? Like, take him when you can get him, dude. (laughs) You don't think ladies are lining up outside the Porkchop Express? I don't know (laughs) that anybody was like, tuck your tank top into your jeans, daddy. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know. His boots came up high enough. His tank top was actually tucked into his boots. It was, uh, (laughs) you thought it was tucked into his jeans, but that was just a trick of the eye. Didn't they gave her an out too? So it was kind of balanced, right? She's like, I'd go with you if you bought a better truck or whatever. And and then he's like, yeah, but eventually everyone gets tired of me. And she's like, yeah, I wasn't that into you. And and they're kind of both equally like, yeah, it's good that we didn't do it. But then, like, at least then have the sex. You know what I mean? Like, if you did all of this to get there and then you were like, no, this isn't going to be anything. Like, that's a good point. Maybe that's the subtext. They boned down the night before. And so they're both uh, like, oh, oh, we got that out of our system. Or it wasn't <laughs> that great. Oh. We're like, we're done. We're fine. I'm a sucker for like uh, a little tractor trail, like a little truck that has a, like a bedroom in the back. Oh, yeah. He definitely um, has that bed in the back of the cab. Yeah, he does. I don't know that he does, though. His I don't think his was the extended cab. But like I follow a weird amount of TikTok accounts that are just like tours of trucks. Like so you could see the little living spaces that they have back <laughs> Are you there. serious? Oh. This is a really weird expertise for you to bust out. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by it. I don't know. I just want to see what they look like. Every time I on the highway and I see one, I'm like, I wonder what he like what's back there, you know? Is yeah, a little microwave, maybe, or like a little yeah. mini fridge. Who knows? Just wondering what his setup is. Can't help it. Um. Yeah, he didn't have the real stretch cab that could have like a big king bed back there, yeah. but I think there's still right. room for a cot and a little foot locker behind the seats, isn't there? Probably. I have to go take another look at it. Oh, they're selling the Pork Shop Express on Etsy as well for $300. What? No, I'm looking it up here. Clickety clackities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely got room for a cop back there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he probably just sleeps while he drives, honestly. Yeah, knowing him, how just yeah. <laughs> like he does not yeah. respect the other drivers on the road or the rules of the road. No. He podcasts, eating, sleeping, driving all at the same time. And that is Big Trouble in Little China. A fun movie. Yes. Yeah. What a film. What a film. Who knew? We're going <laughs> to make a carpenter ran out of you yet, Nash. I mean, but truly it is beautiful in like how many moments they get is like genuine laugh out loud comedy that's not at the cultural expense. You know what I mean? Because uh-huh. that was easily where white America could have gone. Yeah. All right. Do you want us to hear where these people all went after this movie? What happened to them? Well, we don't really need to talk about Kurt Russell because he's still one of our finest actors. Okay, but and, he uh, is just, 71 right now. Yeah. Is he? So okay. let that hurt your feelings. He's starting, you're starting to see it a little bit, but he still can pull off like, you know, a leading man. How long ago was The Hateful Eight? Like 2015? He's kind of the lead of that movie. Yeah, he played uh, pretty young in that, feels like. Yeah. Let's talk about John Carpenter because like we said, had a mixed bag in the 80s leading up to this, but then he would have a bit more luck with his next two movies. He made Prince of Darkness and They Live. And then I, I went deep and checked all his movies he made after They Live. He never made a movie after They Live that made money. So there's <laughs> Memoirs of an Invisible Man, In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, Escape from L.A., Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, and The Ward were all bombs. <laughs> I haven't seen a single one. Damn. In the Mouth of Madness is good. Escape from L.A. sucks. Escape from New York is much better. Vampires is pretty cool. I saw Ghosts of Mars, but I don't remember it very well. But, you know, don't worry, Lil Carpenter Ant. We're going to we're gonna talk about a bunch of these at some point. I've got a ton to choose from. We're going to start chewing through them. It's right. The power of teamwork. Take them down pillar by pillar. I don't really know what Carpenter Ants do. They eat wood, right? They're like termites. Uh, yeah. There is some rumor about a remake or a sequel, depending on who you ask. None other than Dwayne The Rock Johnson would like to portray Jack Burton. 
Okay. But then the more recent news, because that was in 2015, it was reported that Johnson wanted to take over as Jack Burton. But then 2018, it was reported that it would just be a continuation. Kurt Russell would come back as Jack Burton and then Dwayne Johnson would be a new character. So well, I guess that's that? that's the more respectful. I don't know why. Do fans really care? Like, oh, you can't. It undoes Kurt Russell if you reboot the movie with someone else. You have to, like, make it his son or something. I, I think know. there would be a backlash to recasting Burton. He's kind of become an iconic role. But I don't think Kurt Russell at 71 could, like, make us believe it. I mean, he's a good actor, but... I'd like to see him try. I, I think if they're going to do it... I, first of all, I don't think they need to do it. You know, yeah, sometimes we can just I let agree. movies be done. But if they're going to do it, I'd like to see what he brings to an older and maybe wiser Burton. I think that'd be <laughs> interesting. But he'd have to, you know, get back in the gym because he lifted weights for a whole... 10 weeks to get ready for this movie, which is hilarious. <laughs> I think they should put him in on a David Lopan style wheelchair and just let him be the old guy. Let him be low, like the Lopan he takes over becomes, oh. you know, like he gets half haunted spirit, by the half demon. man. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Another <laughs> strong it. John movie concept. That's why he didn't take Gracie with him because he knew he was already being possessed and he didn't want to involve her. So the sequel, though, right? Okay, so if we're accepting that Kurt Russell is coming back at 71 to do the sequel, he's been living with this monster for like 30 years, right? Yeah. Just him and like yeah. the Muppet dude. Yeah, so Harry. Maybe it's just like a buddy comedy or they realize after a while they have feelings for each other. Are you saying Dwayne Johnson should play the monster? <laughs> I am saying that now, yeah. But like he's learned how to speak because he's hung out with Jack for so long and like they've developed a rapport. I like it. I also I just it. don't understand this. the monster at all. Like, he has trouble walking. He's basically stumbling throughout the whole thing, except for when he has to put handcuffs on someone, which is like a very, like, finger, like, what, what are you? <laughs> yeah, you need a lot of dexterity of the hands to, yeah. like, operate those things. That's what you want in a henchman, really, is somebody who can't walk straight, is, <laughs> like, a little drunk all the time. Uh, I don't but, know, his eyes didn't seem great. Like, they, they probably don't have peripheral vision. It's his toes, though. His toes are nine inches long. He yeah. can't walk because he's got those crazy claw toes that are like <laughs> he's tripping over them all the time but he can still carry gracie like totally fine slung over his shoulder but like he puts her down and he's like oh shit like I forgot I'm the, feeble. he's strong but like have you ever tried to walk with skis on you're just like you're all unbalanced and wobbly so that's kind of what he's dealing with yeah i think you nailed it with the toes. I don't fucking know, man. So let's talk about the box office. So we mentioned 12th place with 2.7 million, which is insane. Top spot that week, Karate Kid Part 2. Other new releases were Psycho 3, The Great Mouse Detective, hey. About Last Night, Under the Cherry Moon. They all did better. Uh, it stayed in 12th place the next week with 2 million. So it didn't lose that much. Like it didn't have a big drop off. It went from 2.7 to 2. Club Paradise was the only new wide release that week. And then it dropped off the charts completely in its third week because wow. Aliens came out and just destroyed it. Oh, it got smushed. Got smushed. I mean, everyone was concerned about how to market this movie when they were making it. That's why Russell initially turned the role down. But then apparently there were test screenings that were so overwhelmingly positive that John Carpenter and Kurt Russell kind of got their hopes up that maybe this would be a hit for them. But then 20th Century Fox basically spent no money promoting it. They said they didn't promote it because they didn't know how. Because it is a weird movie to promote. Is it a comedy? Is it an action movie? Is it a martial arts movie? Is it a fantasy? What's the tone? Is it earnest? Is it a joke? Is it scary? Is it funny? You know? I guess that's true. But I think I would have gone with like a full approach and done cuts to make it look like all of those things. 
You know what I mean? Just like pick your moment. A different trailer. Yeah. And just like, bump it out to everybody and just see if people are confused enough to go see it. That's true. This was <laughs> pre-internet. So you couldn't just like go onto YouTube and watch all the trailers in succession. Yeah. So like, yeah, if it's Saturday morning and kids are watching cartoons, cut it to look like a fun martial arts yeah. comedy. And then at night for the parents, you make it look a little scarier with some shots of the monster. So this could have been a, a viable strategy back then. You could have probably gotten away with it. Like even a love story, you could wrap like... Wang doing everything for his girl who we never really talk to at any point or get to know at all. Not, not the most fleshed out <laughs> character in, in movie history. Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't like her because she wouldn't talk. And that wasn't the, what doomed them at the box office. But that was a weird choice. Uh, among the yeah. many choices that I ended up liking in this movie, I still on the second watch didn't like Mao Yin because she's like drugged the whole time or something. Like she can't even say a sympathetic word in her own nope. behalf. What the heck? Yeah, that that's definitely a low point for the movie. But overall, Big Trouble in Little China is a blast. It really is. Right? Like... I was sober when I watched it because I vowed I would stop smoking weed for Blast Zone episodes because oh. it was skewing my... It's very generous of you. <laughs> ...my takes on the film because I was <laughs> not paying attention. And it was still fun, but I can't imagine how much more fun it would be with like a group of friends and some drinks and maybe some herbs. It's just one of those movies you'd love to like sit down and kick back and make fun of while you watch it, but in like a good natured way. Because like the movie's in on the joke too. Definitely be high for it. So I saw it for the first time like 10 years ago and I saw it twice in like one weekend because I was like, that could not be the movie I just saw. You know what I mean? There's oh, like an element okay. of disbelief after the first time. You're like, no, I must have been way more fucked up than I realized. So watching it like a bunch of years later, like I remembered the action piece of it, but I didn't remember how ridiculous it is. So it was like a surprise to me all over again what kind of a character Kurt Russell ends up playing. But nice. I recommend it messed up a little bit. Yes. I'm excited to uh, watch it again in the near future without being sober. Yeah. I think that's, that's going to be a blast. Ian, did you have a final thought on the movie you wanted to bless us with as you want to do? Here's my attempt at a blessing. This movie has flaws that are real, like that no audience can be expected to excuse. So like you can say, I know why it flopped because it doesn't have a real story that makes you feel feelings. And that's my definition of a movie that, you know, it's that's not just textbook definition. I think that's a thing that like you can't fake that people, even if they don't know why they liked a movie, that's why they liked it. It made them feel something, right? So that inherently limits its, its total appeal. It doesn't mean it can't do anything, but like you, you don't really feel the warmth because of the character's story. But once you figure out what it is and what it can do, it's doing really good stuff that you might not get on the first watch, which totally went over my head. I was frustrated. I was disappointed. I had all kinds of problems with this movie on the first watch. But the second time I figured out what it was doing. I figured out what the heck the snappy, crazy dialogue was about. I figured out what the various characters being different from what I expected them to be. I figured out what they were doing with all that. And I figured out how the confusing plot link together. And I'm like, oh, this is really fun when you figure it out. And actually solving those things is part of the fun of it as a rewatch watch movie. So to me, it's almost perfectly engineered to be both a flop on release and a cult classic because it has all this stuff that it pays off for you on multiple watches. As always, Ian, well said. Uh, Thank you. Can't find a single fault in your summarization. <laughs> You're too kind. So. I'm sure there was plenty. Nash, can you please, I know I gave your credits out at the beginning. Can you please tell people how to find you and enjoy your comedy stylings? Absolutely. So I am online basically everywhere all of the time at It's Nash Flynn. That's it. That's the plug. Yeah. Listen to Death and Friends. Yes. Good Listen show. to Death and Friends. Yeah, do that. We've had Angel on the show as well. We are big fans of the Death and Friends family. For sure. And we're going to be back in, I think, two weeks with Elizabethtown. The, oh, boy. The romantic comedy slash oh. tragedy from... 
Cameron Crowe. So I'm excited for that one. We haven't covered a lot of romantic comedies on this pod. It's about time we give them their due. Yeah, it's going to be a fun twist for me. That's new to me. It's a movie I wouldn't have been able to tell you what it was until we put it on our list. <laughs> yes, it is. As you'll come to find in next week's episode, it has a little bit of uh, an oversized cultural footprint for a specific reason. But I don't want to give it away yet, so tune in then. And then uh, hopefully we'll be back on an every week schedule after that, so we'll see. As soon as we can, getting our lives together and our podcasting back on track. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Twitter at Pod for updates on future episodes, just general movie jokes and commentary. You can also DM us on there if you have a suggestion for a movie or uh, any feedback. And we also have email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. Hit us up on there if you have anything you wanted to talk about love to hear from you you. oh we said the same thing this is fun (laughs) all right thanks so much for listening we'll see you next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone the blast zone